welcome to the Impact Podcast. I'm Charlie Bolte. And I'm Christy Piercy. Christy, do you remember that time we were in a band together? Yeah. And do you remember meeting at a bar in Bozeman for a band meeting, the one where we immediately sidetracked ourselves with a friendly debate about a local oil pipeline? I sure do. I suppose it's not a surprise, but this type of discussion became a recurring theme between us at dinner parties, camping trips, and on the ski lift. We just get so worked up trying to solve the world's problems. We always joke that we'd take these discussions and turn them into a project. Because of course, our lives weren't busy enough already. Oh, yeah. We knew we'd be a good match in some kind of media endeavor. What with your background in photography, filmmaking, and storytelling. And your background in environmental science. So over the holidays, with a plate of Christmas cookies and a block of manchego, we said, let's do a podcast. Impact is our way of formally tackling the problems that we love to discuss. It forces us to go deeper into an issue rather than skimming a few news articles that usually leave us with more questions than answers. We've realized that decisions and policy don't just happen. There's an existing framework in which they take place, a process we seek to understand at a deeper level. At this point, we know just enough to be dangerous. Like you, we're concerned citizens that want to know more about environmental decision-making in our nation so we can take a stance on an issue. If you want to know more about how and why our government makes decisions about the environment, this is the podcast for you. The earth is changing, the people are changing, the earth is changing and the people are. We got some decisions to make, we really got some decisions to make. What's the impact? What's the impact? What's the impact gonna be? In July of 2017, big news hit Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho. The iconic grizzly bears of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, home to Yellowstone National Park, were removed from the endangered species list. For the interagency team of scientists who put decades of work into the species, removal of federal protection signaled a victory. But to many environmental groups, this decision was a short-sighted error in judgment. They believed that important factors such as habitat loss and dwindling food sources were not taken into consideration. These groups fought back by suing the federal government shortly after the delisting. This added a new chapter in what has become a decades-long back-and-forth over the Yellowstone Grizzlies. Breaking down that back-and-forth and how we arrived at the 2017 delisting, what this decision means for other grizzly population segments in the lower 48, and the way ahead for management at state level is the focus of Impact's first season, which we're calling Delisted. So it's April of 2018 as we record this first episode. And it seems like relevant articles are dropping every week as this polarizing issue tears along at a seemingly blistering pace. We want to keep you up to date on all these recent developments as they unfold. But first, we need to reach back into history to provide some context of how we got here. In episode one, our goal is to build that context by turning back the clock. To do that... We're going to have to fire up the old Wayback Machine. Uh, what was that? That was the Wayback Machine running at full blast. Uh, okay, Charlie. Imagine this. We're standing in a valley of southwest Montana in a time before Euro-American expansion, Let's just call it prior to the 1800s. We see things that we know today, sweeping vistas, blue ribbon rivers and wide valleys, and snowy mountains reaching up to the sky. 
but there's a notable lack of houses and highways. Hey, I see a lot more animals. Loads of them, in fact. There are herds of bison, elk, and deer. And down by the river, I see a 400-pound lumbering mass. It has brown fur with silver-tipped guard hairs. A dished face and a pronounced hump of muscle behind its neck for digging in the earth? Yep, that's a grizzly bear. And now it's standing on its hind legs, sniffing the breeze. Do you think it smells your deodorant? Mm, You're probably right. Apparently the grizzly has a strong sense of smell. Well, we must not be very interesting because the grizzly is now wandering off. I have to admit, it's hard for me to imagine grizzly bears anywhere but the small, isolated regions in the northern Rockies we know today. In reality, the grizzly's original range included the entire west, as far south as Durango, Mexico, and as far east to the Mississippi River. Depending on who you ask, prior to the 1800s, somewhere between 50 to 100,000 grizzly bears occupied the western portion of the lower 48. Today, grizzlies number about 1,400 in the contiguous U.S. and occupy approximately 1 to 2 percent of their former range across five small ecosystems. Those numbers show a stark difference when placed side by side. So how did we get there? For roughly seven decades, from 1800 to 1870, Euro-Americans flowed west, manifesting their destiny all over the place. During these years, rapid exploitation of America's resources was the name of the game. Ranching and agriculture, resource extraction, urban expansion, and sport hunting all contributed to the demise of several species of ungulates and apex predators. But market hunting shouldered much of the blame for the decimation of western wildlife, and rightly so. Manifest destiny was a major part of the American mindset at this time. People believed they had a God-given right to do whatever they wanted with America's resources. And to some, it seemed our young nation's forests, streams, and wildlife were inexhaustible. But were they ever wrong? We're talking about killing 6 million bison in 13 years. We're talking about hunting pronghorn down from 15 million to just 13,000 in 20 years. We're talking about blasting millions of passenger pigeons into extinction. The last one died in a zoo in 1914. I don't think we can overstate just how many animals were wiped out. It was an incredible number. We're talking almost 500 million animals. While it seemed impossible to stop this hemorrhaging of wildlife, an incredible thing happened. In the midst of the golden age of market hunting, the 1870s, an inspired few pushed back against this relentless killing. Let's talk about 19th century hunting for a second. For this explanation, let's break it down into three categories, subsistence, market, and sport. Subsistence hunters killed animals to eat them. They needed food to survive. Market hunters killed animals to sell the meat, fur, and other parts. It was commercial hunting, cash for meat. And they were killing thousands of animals in a day and packing them onto trains to be shipped off to America's burgeoning urban centers. Sport hunting was rooted in European aristocratic hunting tradition. Sport hunters appreciated the natural world and hunting was a vehicle that took them into it. The idea of taking a hike without a gun, well, that wasn't something they really thought about. Here's the deal. In the 1870s, sport hunters got fed up with the mass extermination techniques of market hunters. 
They cried foul upon returning to their favorite hunting grounds only to find less and less game. What was needed was a national level policy enforced by the federal government, but getting to that policy was a very long road. We're about to summarize volumes of American history into a few succinct paragraphs. We could go on and on about this, and it's really interesting, but it's beyond the scope of what we're doing here in this podcast. See our website for reading recommendations about the history of American conservation. What we will say is that in the late 19th century, American preservationists, conservationists, and sportsmen championed a new movement, conservation of America's wildlife, watersheds, and natural resources. And one of the early hallmark achievements? In 1872, Yellowstone National Park was created, America's first national park. This also happened to be the place where some of the last few remaining bison and grizzly bears lived. While it wasn't originally intended to be a wildlife refuge, conservationists began to understand that wildlife preservation could be an important use of this public land. So back to the sportmen versus market hunters. The sportsmen, in particular, wanted to preserve and propagate the wildlife they enjoyed hunting. At the current rate of reckless extermination by market hunters, it was now feasible that soon there may be nothing left to hunt, and Yellowstone, our new national park, was a proving ground for this philosophy. There are too many influential names to list that were vital to this movement, but two that we do have to mention are Robert Bird Grinnell and Theodore Roosevelt. Grinnell, owner and editor of Forest and Stream, was a highly influential sportsman and proponent of American conservation. It's hard to overstate the amount of influence that Robert Bird Grinnell had with the sportsmen of America and with Roosevelt. Their relationship, which spanned trips out west, their co-founding of the Boone and Crockett Club, and co-editing of multiple books on hunting and conservation helped lay the groundwork for American conservation movement at the federal level. The point is, when Roosevelt ascended to the presidency, Grinnell's influence on Roosevelt and Roosevelt's influence as president popularized conservation in America. And it was at the time when wildlife needed it the most. As the Wayback Machine barrels through the early 20th century, our newly conservation-minded government unfurls a series of new laws protecting rivers, streams, lakes, land, and wildlife. We get federal hunting regulations, wildlife refuges, national forests, and even more national parks. But it wasn't quite that easy. Although it seems like the nation was suddenly intent on putting a tourniquet on the wildlife bloodletting, it remained complicated. And that brings us back to the grizzly bear. Despite all these new protections handed out in the name of responsible conservation, scores of predators continue to be killed off. Predators got a bad rap for a couple reasons. Chiefly, they were viewed as a threat to ranching and agribusiness. In fact, starting in 1914, grizzly and black bears, along with coyotes, wolves, and cougars, were relentlessly killed off as agricultural pests with backing from the federal government. Combine this with continued sport hunting and poaching that was occurring in remote western lands, things continue to look pretty dire. The last grizzly bear in California was killed in 1922. Oregon in 1931, and Arizona in 1935. The population in the lower 48 was rapidly dwindling. Where there had been 50 to 100,000 grizzlies in the lower 48 before the 1800s, only 800 to 1,000 remained in 1975. Okay, so we've seen the grizzly bear population and range essentially disappear during this journey back in time. 
That brings us up to 1975, which is a really important date in Yellowstone grizzly bear history. Despite protection within national parks, our federal government still lacked a competent wildlife management framework. In our next episode, episode 2, we'll explore legislation born from regret, the Endangered Species Act. Will this new law remedy a century of irresponsible hunting practices? Will it be effective? Is it just too late to make a difference? Stay with us as we bring you more. You can find us on the web at www.impactpodcast.org. There we have our episodes, photos, and blog posts. Also, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this important issue. Reach us through our contact page or at info at impactpodcast.org. Music from episode one is provided by Krakatoa, Robin Gray, and Welcome Wizard through freemusicarchive.org. Sound effects were provided by freesfx.co.uk. And a very special thanks to our dear friends, the Burmeisters. Roger, Rory, and Lily amazed us with a from scratch and on the spot theme song recorded in Roger's living room. Finally, a special thank you to our partners in everything, Jason and Aaron.